0: All right, another resource available if you're interested. It's a little pricey, but it's really a nice um, set here. R.C. Sproul has done a, um, he calls it a layman's guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is about 96% ours. Um, And it's very, very good. He's kind of taken a lot of what we're doing, and it's really compressed and gives some really simple summary statements on a lot of the parts of the confession. So... Um, that's available back there for $40, which is a steal. I think it retails at like 70 so it's a pretty good deal. <laughs> um, but that's available for you if you are interested. Um, tonight we're going to um, jump right back into where we left off on the, um, the doctrine of divine simplicity. And... Um, if you recall, last week we dealt with the statement that God is, this is, we're in, uh, if you're looking in your confession, we're in chapter 2, paragraph 1, um, and we are dealing specifically with the statement, uh, last week we dealt with God is, um, God is without body, God is without body, and that's what we spoke on um, this week we're going to deal with, um, and the doctrine of simplicity deals with God without parts. Chapter 2, paragraph 1. Yeah, we're still there. We're, we're like a sentence in. <laughs> yeah, we're moving slow. So A little while, yeah. So, um, as we've been doing, I'd like to read the entire paragraph uh, once more so we can um, get an understanding of the context of what's being written, and, uh, and then we will uh, jump in. So, um, chapter 2 and paragraph 1. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of Himself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. If you recall, again, I said we're going to deal tonight with God is without parts. And all of this ties, um, uh, ties into that statement, kind of in the middle of the paragraph there, um, that God is most absolute. Um, so this has historically been called the doctrine of divine simplicity. And I'll explain why that is, because up front it As we work through it, it doesn't seem all that simple, but um, it may be a um, a mischaracterization in that way, but um, you'll understand why it is. So, um, the framers of the confession really did the right thing by dividing out God without body, which we discussed last week, and God without parts. Uh, God without parts, I think um, our initial thought is that that's actually dealing with physical parts, but it's not. It's not... It's not saying God doesn't have body parts. we already dealt with that last week God without body um, instead we're talking about ex, um, uh, his eternal attributes um, mainly there are other things we'll address, but mainly we're dealing with the attributes of God um, so god without uh, God without body, which we talked about last week is uh, it's rather clear. It's pretty straightforward. It's rarely ever challenged. And the only time we've ever really seen it challenged is in um, the cults and particularly Mormonism, as I pointed out last week. But among uh, evangelical Christians, orthodox Christianity, um, it's, uh, it's re- rarely ever challenged. Um, God without parts, the doctrine of divine simplicity, is less clear Although that doesn't make it less true, it is less clear, I'll give them that, and it is regularly challenged among evangelical scholars. There are very uh, orthodox evangelical um, um, teachers today that uh, deny this doctrine, and we'll get into some of the reasons why. Um, But thankfully, for those who affirm this doctrine, as we do, uh, the historical voice of the church is uh, firmly in support of it. Believe it or not, among Protestants and uh, Roman Catholics. Um, most importantly, um, the biblical evidence points to the simplicity of God, and is presented in uh, many different historical works that are very helpful. So, um, it's kind of uh, what we're what we're dealing with in terms of the historical aspect, but. Um, Here, let me try to give us a definition. I'm going to be quoting a lot from different writers. Um, I wanted to give us a lot of different voices here to pull from so we can try to have a good... Understanding of exactly what we mean here. So some of it may be kind of muddy in the language, so I'll try to go slow and uh, stop when uh, I feel like there needs to be explanation. Um, we're going to also stop in the middle of this first one to look at some Scripture. Um, but let me kind of give you a um, um, definition up front. Uh, in simplest terms, the doctrine of divine simplicity... Uh, is the idea that God is everything he possesses. In other words, he he is his own wisdom, his own life. Being and living coincide in him. That maybe sounds very confusing. God is everything he possesses. He is his own wisdom, his own life. Being and living coincide in Him. Now, when we say simplicity, here's what we mean: God is a simple being, rather than a complex being that can be divided out into parts. Remember, um, we can we can take anything that's uh, created, and uh, recognize that there are various parts that make that up. We can consider ourselves. We have all sorts of parts, not just physically, but even um, we have a soul. We have um, emotions. We have all these other uh, feelings, all these sorts of things that uh, make up what we are as human beings. So what we're saying is that makes us to be very complex beings, whereas God is a simple being. God is. Um, Now, let me... um, Let's deal with this scripturally first, and then we will um, deal with um, the actual doctrine as it plays out. Now, here's uh, up front, here's what makes some of this a little more difficult to work through, and probably why there's a lot more debate on certain of these things um, in the theological world. Um, Because we're dealing with doctrines that are seeking to cover what the Bible as a whole is saying about God, So we can't really just go to passages of Scripture and say, uh, this verse says this is what God is. Um, There are certain things we can do that about, but we have to remember when we deal with doctrines like this, we're talking about God being revealed in all of Scripture. So we can't proof text it. We can't just say, well, go to Jeremiah 10 and here's your answer. Now, we're going to deal with God's attributes, and I want to point those out from the Scriptures. And this first definition we're going to use does that. Um, but remember, at that point, we're just dealing with attributes. But what we are saying is all of these attributes are who God is. Not as individual attributes, but all of them in their perfection make up who God is. Um, so, this is um, this is our first definition. It's um, from Herman Bavinck. Um, Reformed um, Dogmatics is the name of his uh, work, but he helps us in our understanding what the doctrine is trying to address scripturally. So let me take this slow, and we'll stop and do some uh, reading in the Bible to kind of help us along. He writes, The fact of the matter is that Scripture, to denote the fullness of the life of God, uses not only adjectives, but also substantives. It tells us not only that God is truthful, righteous, living, illuminating, loving, and wise, but also that He is the truth, righteousness, life, light, love, and wisdom. Hence, on account of its absolute perfection, every attribute of God is identical with His essence. So, I want to look at, he says, the Bible tells us, that God is truth, righteousness, life, light, love, and wisdom. So let's look at examples of each of those. Um, we're going to f- flip to several different passages, so have your Bibles ready. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 10, if someone can read that to us. If you get there before someone else, please just go ahead and read the verse. This is God is truth, the truth. Jeremiah ten ten. Okay. God is the true God. there is nothing but truth in Him. He is the one true God. Uh, Jeremiah 23:6. God is righteousness. Okay. The Lord is our righteousness. He is our source of righteousness. Why? How? Because He is righteousness. Okay, John 1, four and five. God is life. Okay, great. So who, obviously, is John talking about? Sunday school? Jesus, yes. He is, uh, the life is in Him. He is life. Um, Bavink also deals with light, and it's in that same passage, verse 9. John chapter 1, verse 9. You read verse 9 for us as well, Sam. Okay, the true light was coming into the world. He is light, and he has arrived in the world. okay um, love John 14 six Okay, I knew that. sorry um, <laughs> we're dealing there with a kind of a combination of these. Jesus saying, "I am the way." The truth and the life. So truth and life are two uh, attributes here that Bob Inc. has illustrated. Um, and Jesus himself saying, I am these things. This is who I am. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. Righteousness and sanctification okay. He is righteousness, sanctification, and Wisdom. Okay, so again, we have this this very clear indication from the scriptures saying this is who God is. He is these things, um, not that He possesses them, but that He is them. That's a very, very um, important distinction to make. First um, John chapter one and verse five. Okay, there we go again. God is light. There is no darkness. Um, and 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. Okay, great. And we've looked at that several times. God is love. So maybe you've never paid attention to that before, but that's a really important distinction to see. All of these things um, that we're looking at say God is these things. That is really, really important. And um, if you think of it on a devotional level, it is uh, very reassuring and very hope-filled that uh, we don't just um, have a God who uh, displays these attributes from time to time, but He is these things. He is all of these things in their absolute perfection at all times um, without fail. And that is very, very encouraging uh, to the believer. And hopefully as we go on, it becomes more and more so. So that's what we're dealing with, these parts. Really dealing with these attributes as they, um, as they exist. So when we say God is without parts, we're, we're saying that He is not made up of these things as individual slices of the pie that make up the whole. We're saying He is all of these things in their perfection, in their totality. They are not individual elements that make up the whole. So I'm going to read from several authors, and they're all going to kind of say that in different ways. First, um, actually from what I just held up, R.C. Sproul. uh, He defines the fullness of what we're seeking to address about God. He says, When we seek to understand God... We tend to project our human complexity onto his being. We list his attributes, immutability, eternality, omniscience, omnipresence, holiness, and all the others. We sometimes tend to think that God is made up of one part holiness, one part immutability, one part omnipotence, and several other parts. But all of God is all of his attributes in their entirety. God's holiness is immutable, omnipotent, eternal, and omnipresent. In like manner, his immutability is holy, omniscient, and eternal. His omnipotence is not arbitrary or capricious, but holy and immutable. God's power will never weaken, for it is unchangeable. Every attribute we ascribe to him applies to the whole of God. His attributes all exist mutually in a kind of um, um, reciprocal um, nature of attributes. So w- something that I hadn't thought a lot about that, as I read what R.C. Uh, Sproul had written here is not only is God the perfection and the fullness of all the attributes, but the various attributes define the other, the other attributes. So, as, as he said here, it's not just that God is holy, but that his immutability is holy. His omniscience is holy. His omnipresence is holy. Uh, it's not um, just that he is immutable, it's also that his immutability is, um, is present in his omniscience and his eternality. And all of these, so, not only are they all. imperfection present at all times, but they are also, um, they're all interwoven because they are God, and God is these things. Does that make sense, hopefully? Because uh, He is beautiful as His other attributes. Good. And He's holy, He's just, and therefore that sustains that, that also, that other attribute of who He is. Yeah, 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 it would. If God is holy, holy to perfection, There is, um, He is the definition of holy, I guess you can say, Um, then sin is uh, not, you can't reconcile sin with holiness. They're complete contradictions. So um, nothing God does is sin because God does it. If He did it and it was sin, He would no longer be God. Or better stated, if he did it, it wouldn't be sin. So how do you answer that question when he says, well, how is that? How can he do anything if you can't do To us, it would be sin. Right. Um, to Josh, what you're dealing with there, we won't get into it now because it's a whole... We'll get onto it eventually. Um, but you're dealing with God as, you know, there's primary and secondary causes of things and... Um, so, while God is a primary cause, he's not the immediate cause of something um so that's a whole nother uh couple of weeks yeah <laughs> yeah good no that's um that's great, and well, you hear a lot of those things, so it's important to know how to respond and for us even to think through those you know if we if we don't know it's important for us to know, so that's good. Okay, Um, let's push on. So divine simplicity is nothing more than the intimate connection and entire unity of all the attributes of God and their unity or identity with, and we're going to use this word a lot, divine essence. This is the essence of God. As, you, as I pointed out in the Confession in that paragraph, where all, all of this is kind of pointing to that statement that the Confession says, that, um, that um, this is dealing with God's essence. Now, Thomas Aquinas, who you may have heard of historically, he's thought to be one of the greatest early thinkers in the early church with regards to the doctrine of divine simplicity. Now, you're not going to get me quoting Aquinas very often, so when you do, it's probably noteworthy. Um, In other words, don't rush out and buy all of his books. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thomas's greatest um, contribution to the advancement of the doctrine of simplicity um, is found in his teaching that every created thing is at the very least composed of existence and essence. So we're dealing with two things there. The fact that it exists and the fact that it has essence. No created essence is identical with its act of existence. Let me get through it and then we'll explain. And is, it's, that makes it relative and dependent in some sense. But God's essence is identical with his existence. Therefore, God is absolutely necessary and God is self-sufficient. So here's what he's dealing with in the end. None of us, and in fact I can expand that out to say, nothing at all in all of the universe is self-sufficient. Nothing. Everything depends upon whatever created it, whatever the elements are that make up its essence, in order that it has existence. So, my favorite illustration, this chair... It has existence, but it also has essence. What is the... We, we can all say that it exists, right? We don't have any question about that. What is the essence of the chair? Okay, it has chairness, right? We can say that. There is chairness to it, right? Nobody walks in and looks at this, uh, any of these chairs and says, "Well, I don't, I don't know what that is. Right? We know what that is because we've identified it in its existence as being something that serves a specific purpose. In fact, so much so that when it's not used for the purpose that it's intended, we point that out, right? Parents, if you're a good parent, when your children are running down the rows on top of the chairs, what do we tell them? Get down. That's not what that's for. I hope don't trip. <laughs> don't fall on your face. Um, Why? Because we we have identified that this exists with a specific essence. There is something about it that is intended for something. Running up and down on it is not it. Okay, so it has characteristics that make it to be what it is. Those things came together as composite elements that made it up to be so we again we can go through look at one of these Um, there are several elements that make this up right there is plastic there is whatever kind of ugly cloth that is there's metal there's wood um, and then everything that goes into making those elements whatever I'm not, I don't know, whatever makes metal and plastic and cloth and wood, all of the things in there. There's moisture in there. There are fibers of certain types in there. All of these things come together to make this thing exist. Those, those various pieces are the essence of what makes um, the chair have chairness. Okay. So what Aquinas is saying is, Everything in the existence we, uh, of creation we can look at and say um, that there are parts that make up the whole in order to bring about its existence. Even single-cell organisms. Um, it is only one cell, but it's still not self-existent, right? It didn't just happen without anything creating its happening. That is the fatal flaw in the evolutionary um, theory, that nothing just happened without a initial cause. So, yes, what we are saying is that God is the only uncaused cause in all the universe. God is the causer of all things, but He is uncaused. Nothing caused God because, remember we already talked about, He is eternal, His eternality. There never was a time ever where God wasn't. God always has been and God always will be. So if God always was, there was nothing that created God, nothing that caused God, because God was always God. So he is uncaused in and of himself, but he is the cause of all things. I was going to blow your minds with more, but I won't, because it just gets a little tangled, and I want to stay on track. Um, To deny God... As the ultimate cause is to deny him of his essence, of his godness. To say that God is not the cause of all things is to say that he's not God. Because His the the very fact that he is the cause is a part of his godness, is his essence. Um, Is um, to say um, that... We have a chair that we can never sit on, that is only a chair to never be sat upon, is to deny um, the, um, the essence of what the chair was created to be, right? It was, it was supposed to be something that it has never been attributed uh, the, the use for. So if we're saying, um, you know, God... God is not the cause of all things, then what we 're saying is something else is the cause apart from God, and therefore we 're denying one of god 's attributes, which in turn is denying God as God, right because he is the sum uh, he is the fullness of all of these attributes Are we tracking with this is kind of a logic puzzle, maybe yeah. Tracking. Yeah sure well I don't I don't deny that you know it's like with anything else just because we deny it doesn't mean it's not true um you know I can say I'm not a man um I'm a woman but that doesn't make me a woman um I'm still a man but um the question then comes down to does our denial of something um mean that that takes us out of the kingdom of God what has God required for one to enter the kingdom of God is it a full understanding of you know all that's true about God and all of his essence well no um, because God in his grace and his mercy has made the kingdom of God available to many many people who have a lot of really bad theology Um, so I does that you know that's where I think in lines of those things. That Certainly, I don't deny that. There are Christians who deny this very thing that God is the ultimate cause of all things. We can't deny that. Or else we deny God's omnipotence. God is not all-powerful if God is not the ultimate cause of all things. And that gets kind of back to Joshua's question earlier. Um, But God uses means. God is a God of means. What happens is a lot of people look at those means and don't think beyond those means. They just think about that means. So the greatest example that I can think of for us to kind of work through that is um, uh, Wayne Grudem uses this in his systematic theology. Um, Who wrote the play Macbeth? William Shakespeare, right? Okay, in Macbeth, um, King Duncan is killed um, by, it's been a while, I think Lady Macbeth, right? Is that right? Yes. Okay. So, who killed King Duncan? Lady Macbeth. Macbeth. But who wrote the play that wrote in that Lady Macbeth would kill King Duncan? Shakespeare. Well, yeah. (laughs) You're blown up my illustration. <laughs> right, so William Shakespeare didn't kill King Duncan in one sense, but in another he was at absolute control over it. He could have rewritten it all together to where that never happened, right? So when we talk about God as the cause of all things, he's not the one doing what is sinful, but there is a means that brings about that end. Uh, you can see it all through the Old Testament very clearly. Um, What does God say every time the Israelites are taken into captivity? I am sending a people in order to take you into captivity. (laughs) The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to beat the trash out of you and take you and uh, make you their slaves for a while uh, because you're disobedient to me. But then he tells the Babylonians, um, you are a sinful and wicked people and you have um, rebelled against me and you have come against my people and I'm going to punish you for it. God is the cause of that. But God is also holding them responsible for their sin in that. Why? Because um, that's what he said. This is sin. You're responsible for that. But it's not as though he's making them do something beyond what's already in their sinful hearts. It's not like the Babylonians were like, we really don't want to you know take over this land and these people and have all of their riches Uh, we really want to love them and care for them and feed them and nurture them Um, but god is making us uh, take over it's not god was working with that means as a way to accomplish his will to bring about their um, their end so it is um, that in and of itself that one statement is sort of a powder keg um, that would kind of blow up if you got into a conversation with certain people who really understood what you were saying because it does deal with some sticky situations. We have to deal with the reality that there is great evil that goes on in the world. There's um, you know, genocide. There's uh, great famine. There is uh, rape and incest and molestation and all of these things. So are we going to say that God is not sovereign over those things? We can't. We deny God as God in doing that. Um, but obviously, you say that to someone um, without thinking through how that is and how God is still God and God is still holy in the midst of all of that, um, it can raise a lot of hair on your neck, and um, and you know nails come out and people want to fight about it. Um, So it's really, really important that we understand all of these things properly. Go ahead. Right. Well, according to Jesus in the Book of Luke, uh, it is God's punishment, and he he tells all of the people when they are they're you know they are talking to Jesus about the Tower of Siloam that fell on people and killed them. And they're asking, how can this be? How did God let this happen? And Jesus, his response is, you need to repent or you're going to perish likewise. In other words, this is God's judgment. Um, make sure that you're right with God. That's what that means. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And you can go, you know, 9-11 uh, was one of those things. And people were saying, well, God wasn't in that. He just backed up and let it happen uh, because of our sin or, what, you know, Whatever. Why how is that helpful at all? How is it helpful at all to remove God from the situation altogether? Um, anyhow, all right, we have a few minutes let 's um, try to try to press on a little bit okay, composition so we talked about um, Aquinas here uh, saying that every, everything that is composed, everything that is made, it entails that the composite thing be a dependent effect that is, in some sense, in the process of becoming. And it is not wholly self-identifying. In short, a composite being is a creature. So, All of us are in the process of becoming. We are not the entirety of our essence, right? We get older, we wrinkle, we shrink, we whatever we do, we uh, become something and someone completely different than we were when we were born, or when we were um, conceived, or when we are in the ground. Uh, We are continually becoming. Um, Everything in existence has that property. Nothing exists that is always and will always be in the same eternal state that it always has been and always will be except for God. So... When we talk, um, when we talk about uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity, we're dealing with this reality that God is not composite. God is not made up of parts that are becoming. Does that make sense? God is not becoming something. God is not progressing. God is not advancing. God is God. That's why uh, there's a heresy. Uh, it's called open theism. It's becoming more and more popular. It's the idea that, yeah, God, the future hasn't happened yet, and therefore God cannot know what that is because it hasn't yet happened. It falls back on this idea that man is so free and autonomous in his own will um, that he makes his own decisions, and in doing that, God doesn't know what those decisions will be. So while God knows everything that has already happened and knows everything that's presently happened, he can't possibly know what's going to happen in five minutes because it hasn't happened yet. Absolutely. Yeah. I, at least I give him that. There's, <laughs> yeah. They're being consistent. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, another... Another help here, uh, 17th century Puritan, John Owen. If you've read any of John Owen, you know this is going to be very simple to understand. Um, he, wrote, uh, he wrote a lot of arguments against heresies of his day. Uh, one of them was dealing with people um, who denied the doctrine of the Trinity. They denied the hypostatic union of Christ. In other words, Jesus being 100% God and 100% man. They believed that God was a single person, and when the Bible spoke of the Holy Spirit, it was simply talking about the power of God. It was a heresy known as Socinianism in doing so owen um, owen 's intention and you really, as you read John Owen, you see that he was relying upon Aquinas, which we just read. Um, His intention was to prove that God is the absolute first and independent being. God is dependent upon no one or nothing ever at all. And He is the first. So Owen writes this, If God were of any causes, internal or external, any principles antecedent or superior to Him, He could not be so absolutely first and independent Were he composed of parts, accidents, manner of being, he could not be first. All of these are before that which is of them, and therefore his essence is absolutely simple. Bottom line, he's saying it's not possible that God would be God if anything was before him or if he is dependent upon anything. He can't depend on anything and nothing came before him and it can't come before him because then there's something greater than God, something that created God. Um, Bavink, again, um, who I've already quoted, he highlights the importance of the doctrine in Orthodox Christianity. He's, his argument, as we're going to read, is that this isn't some peripheral issue for theologians um, in high towers to sit around and talk about. It is essential as to whether or not one understands God to be God as he actually is, as uh, was already brought up. Um, to deny divine simplicity is to deny the essence of God as God. Here's what he says. Simplicity is the antonym of compounded. If God is composed of parts, like a body, or composed of, you've got to remember back to your biology class, of genus class and um, a Latin word, def- differentiate, the attributes of differing species. The, you deal with genus and species, right? Species is within a genus, is that right? Okay. Can phylum, them class? Yeah, she can help us. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so if God is composed of a class and a species, substance and accidents, then his perfection, his oneness, his independence, his immutability cannot be maintained. On that basis, he is not the highest love, for then there is in him a subject who loves, which is one thing, as well as a love by which he loves, which is another the same dualism would apply to all of the other attributes in that case god is not the one then whom nothing better can be thought instead god is uniquely his own having nothing above him accordingly he is completely identical with the attributes of wisdom grace and love and so on he is absolutely perfect the one than whom nothing higher can be thought. So I love this point that he makes when he says, if it's true that God, if something's before God or God is dependent upon something, then God is not the highest love, for then there is in him a subject who loves. It, be, it seems like a very tiny distinction, but it's huge. Instead of saying God is love... We're saying God is a God who loves. In other words, are we love? No. No, we're not. If anything, we could say our essence, we're a lot closer to sin than we are to love. Uh, But nevertheless, God's total essence is love. If we don't make that distinction and say God has love, instead He does love. But we have to deal with the 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 essence here, then we're saying um that there is something within God that he's dependent upon in order to love. Does that make sense right a of exactly. so what we get to then, and i Steve and I talked about this last week, none of us can have. Um, what we may think of as dueling emotions going on at the same time, right? I can't, with all of my being, I can't be angry and absolutely and totally loving all at the same exact time. I cannot express those two things at the same time. It's not possible. Um, But God is those things. Now, I can... um, I can be angry and be human all at the same time, and I will always be human. Um, Nothing is going to change my humanness, my essence. But where we get into the difficulty in defining all of this is we think of anger and wrath and vengeance and love and mercy and kindness. We think of those simply as emotions because we're thinking in human terms. But all of these are God's essence, as is our humanness, our humanity. Um, so we have to think of it in terms of this is who God is, not simply something that God projects or displays. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And again, that's one of the elements um, that's one of the things we look at and we divide out God as Trinity. And from there we even divide out God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit and think of them without thinking of them as Him. <laughs> God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, he's not you know, 33.3 repeating percent of each of them. He is, he is all of these subsistences. He is all of these persons um, all at the same time. Um, and yet is one God. And because He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is eternality to His love. And His essence is love, and therefore it is expressed throughout all eternity among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. You don't push pause on one and move to the other. He is... Yeah. <laughs> right, one of the, you push it and the next color comes down. That's that's good. That's exactly right. <laughs> Let me give you uh an illustration from Stephen Charnock. Um it's it's another resource is really good to have in your library at home. It's called The Existence and Attributes of God. He's a writer in the 17th century. This is the classic work on the existence and attributes of God. It's about that big. It's like Two volumes I'll put into one. You can buy it now. But I really highly recommend you have it. It's not very much either. Um, He uses an illustration, and if you have your paper from last week, I think I printed it on there. Um, But he displays the inseparability of the doctrines of immutability and simplicity. So someone, real quick, um, give us a summary of immutability. When we say God is immutable, what are we saying? We dealt with this a few weeks ago. God is unchanging, right? Okay, so... And as I said then, all of these sort of tie in together, but he's really making the point here that God's immutability insists upon his simplicity. So here we go. It's a lengthy quote. God were not the most simple being if he were not immutable. There is in everything that is mutable, changeable, a composition either essential or accidental. Accidental. And in all changes, something of the thing changed remains, and something of it ceases and is done away. As for example, in an accidental change, if a white wall be made black, it loses its white color. But the wall itself, which was the subject of that color, remains and loses nothing of its substance. Likewise, in a substantial change, as when wood is burnt, the substantial part of wood is lost. The earthly part is changed into ashes. The airy part ascends into smoke. The watery part is changed into air by the fire. There is not an annihilation of it, but a resolution of it into those parts whereof it was compounded. And this change doth evidence that it was compounded of several parts distinct from one another. If there were any change in God, it is by separating something from him or adding something to him. If by separating something from him, then he was compounded of something distinct from himself. (coughs) For if it were not distinct from himself, it could not be separated from him without the loss of his being. If by adding anything to him, then it is a compounding of him, either substantially or accidentally. Mutability is absolutely inconsistent with simplicity, whether the change come from an internal or external principle. If a change be wrought by something without outside it supposeth, it supposeth either contrary or various parts in the thing so changed whereof it doth consist if it be wrought by anything within it supposeth that the thing so changed doth consist of one part that doth change it and another part that is changed and so it would be it would not be a simple being here's the main point here If God could be changed by anything within himself, all in God would not be God. His essence would depend upon some parts, whereof some would be superior to others. If one part were able to change or destroy another, that which changes would be God. That which is changed would not be God. So God would be made up of a deity and a non-deity. And part of God would depend upon God. I'm going to stop there because that's really what I wanted to drive in that point. That is really, really important um, to to grasp. That he's saying that nothing that God is is dependent um, upon anything else that God is. If it was, then one of those that doesn't change would be God, would be deity, and the other would not. Does that make sense? Does that help? Okay. Yeah, cause and effect. Sure. Well, no. That's why two weeks ago we talked about the incomprehensibility of God. <laughs> sure. No, that's true. Um, well, we're, we're over time. I really. Um, all that we have left in the doctrine of simplicity is I want us to deal with. Those who deny simplicity, who reject it and think it's not biblical. Uh, Because I think it's important, it's helpful to understand what we are saying by sometimes looking at people's objections um, that we can answer them. Um, Because maybe there's some things that as you think on this this week that um, will come up and you'll think a little bit more about and you'll say, but what about whatever? So um, we will deal with that next time. Then we will... (laughs) Move into divine impassibility, God without passions, um, which I thought we were going to do like two weeks ago, but we've we've gone slowly, which is fine. So, any other uh, thoughts, comments, questions before we close? Sure. And here's part of the. Here's what aids in the error, is that people who do understand rightly what the scriptures are saying are either. Well, in essence, we've been convinced that to address that sort of error in a way that holds their feet to the fire um, is either not gracious or not loving or whatever else. So we just sort of back down from demanding the absolute sovereignty of God in all things to include our salvation. Because the vast majority of American evangelicalism says God is not as sovereign as the Bible says He is. Um and so we've just kind of been lulled into a place where we say okay well um you know the most um the most well-known teachers of the bible in all of the world are espousing false doctrine but for us to say anything about that is is harsh or unloving or we're trying to be no i'm i'm trying to help people see god as god this isn't about being right it's not about winning an argument it's about helping people to see that god is who god says he is um, and that is of vital importance if we're going to honor him rightly. Um, so I think that aids into it because we back away enough to where people, they're deceived. And this is just what I know and what I've heard, and so it is what it is. Um, so, of course, we want to be gracious and gentle. Um, but we, you know, we, can dis- we can disagree boldly um, and, and uh, be firm in that and uh, address false teaching head on. So it's, it's really important to do so. Anything else?